Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me is Cameron. Yep. Today we are still in the middle of episode 10 with partisode 10-2. And, uh, well, some, some stuff really happens. Well, happens is a strong word. Transpires? Occurrences. <laughs> there are occurrences in, in what we've uh, read for today. <laughs> uh, unless you have something uh, that you want to get off your chest at the top, Cameron, um, I can just jump right into the summary. Um, I'm looking, I'm thinking, I'm looking at my notes. No, I got nothing. Okay. Uh, actually, one point that I should just say before I do do the summary. Uh -oh. uh, a couple of people have reached out to let me know vis-a-vis um, -vis the Kickstarter uh, reward tiers uh, where people saw immediate, like, the, the you know, your fan troll becomes canon in Homestuck. Uh, and people were like, immediately, oh, obviously, like, your fan troll will show up for one panel and then get incinerated. Uh, something that people reminded me of because, uh, these images no longer exist is that on the Kickstarter, there were some joking, uh, God tier rewards, uh, and they were hidden behind links because they were done in the style of the God tier, uh, level up screens from the comics. They were, so they were like flashing, uh, and one of them was, uh, if you donated like a million dollars or whatever, uh, your fan troll would become canon and homestuck and survive beyond one page. So... That was already given uh, at the beginning. Uh, multiple people reached out to let me know about this, so I'm just uh, acknowledging it here. Those images no longer exist because they were hosted on the MSPA uh, website, and the directory has been wiped. So um, there's just nothing there to see, but they did exist. Uh, summary, then. 10-2. <clears throat> Act 6, Act 6, Act 2 returns to Caliborn's narrative, where he introduces his version of Dave, who he will call the Alpha Male, and who will be the hero of his version of Homestuck. After promising us there will be no pester logs, Caliborn has crappy drawings of the Alpha and Beta girls follow the Alpha Male around in order to be impressed by him. John zaps into the scene and is grossed out by the defiled and degraded reality he inhabits. To him, the other characters are all weird, lifeless mannequins. Caliborn tells us to ignore John and continues his story, talking about how the alpha male entered the medium and set about having an adventure on the land of someone's handicrafts I took, or low shit, populated by images cut out of the child's illustration manual Hussy left. Everybody mounts a set of flying horses, and John accidentally slams into and destroys the bogus version of Roxy. The alpha male receives a deus ex machina sword made out of pornography that allows him to effortlessly defeat a witch, a robot, and a wolf. When Caliborn has the bogus Rose try and kiss the bogus Dave, John gets truly fed up. Having passively criticized all that has been happening, he now tries to intervene directly, destroying both mannequins. Caliborn begins to teleport more Daves in, and as John is snugly ensconced by inert puppet buddy bodies, Caliborn urges us to read Act 6, Act 6, Intermission 2 as quickly as possible to come back here for more. On Jake's planet, Jane builds his house towards Skya. On Jade and John's battleship, Gamzee is revealed to be sleeping in the refrigerator next to where John was napping before he lost his ring. Surprise! Gamzee has the ring. 
Also, the fact he is being mind-controlled is now patently obvious due to the blue Scorpio sign on his forehead. In his dreams, Arania appears in Mindfang cosplay, congratulates her bard on a job well done, and with the ring of life on her finger, follows him back to the waking living world. Mina calls Arania and is like, what the fuck? Arania explains her plan is to assume control of what has now been turned into a beta timeline using her considerable troll psychic abilities and fully developed class spec powers to turn it into a new alpha timeline. She then telekinetically pilots the battleship to Purpo. Jane sees this and follows. On Purpo, Arania visits Jake in his prison cell and comes on to him strongly, saying she will use her healing ability to fully unlock his hope powers by fixing his brain, and he will be her consort as she rules over the new timeline. Jake gets extremely upset. Arania thus decides not to forcibly romance him, but goes ahead forcibly healing him, and Jake erupts in a radiant white blast of hope. He rises into the air and shouts corny old-timey sayings in massive green text, destroying the prison and freeing Roxy from her cell. Jade arrives and finds her first guardian powers cannot teleport Jake away due to the power of hope, so she simply switches locations by swapping out the planet below with her own. There, Karkat and Kanaya see what's now happening in the sky above and alert Dave. Jake's hope field overpowers Jade, driving her into the lagoon by her house, forming a crater that fills with magma from the nearby volcano. She is knocked away by the blast, and Arania topples Jade's house over the magma lagoon and smashes Jade, crushing the witch under the house. You know, like in The Wizard of Oz? With maybe a bit of circuit luck, the god-tier clock decides Jade's death is just. Roxy tries to sneak up on Arania, but Arania puts her to sleep yet also doesn't realize that Jake's hope power is summoning a phantom Dirk behind her. Meanwhile, Jane prepares to resurrect Jade, but Gamzee literally falls from the sky and lands on her. In the dream bubbles, Calliope sits in her hiding spot feeling lonely. Someone approaches, and a small stage with green curtains appears. Calliope hides inside, but when the interloper turns out to be a friendly Jade, she pops out in her trollsona to say hello. On his planet, Dave tells the mayor goodbye and flies off, arriving on Jade's planet to find her already dead. Arania and Jake's brain ghost Dirk taunt each other, with the phantom Dirk drawing his sword and vowing revenge for her kissing his boyfriend. This entire time, Jane has been trying to shake off Gamzee, and finally does so when Terezi descends with a flying kick that knocks him onto a chunk of Jade's house floating in the lava pit. Dirk stabs Arania, but the ring of life heals her and prevents her from dying. Terezi stabs the shit out of Gamzee, but he remains unnervingly passive, while evil clown power keeps him from dying. Jane tries to resurrect Jade again, but finds that Jack Noir and PM have arrived, and their doggy powers make them incredibly protective of Jade's corpse. In the dream bubbles, Jade tells Callie she can't remember if she's asleep or dead, and Callie explains the recently dead only come to realize their status when they try to remember their history. Since she fears she wasn't being a very nice person before she died, Jade decides to hang out with Callie instead and make her own Trollsona. Jade feels like she met a different version of Callie before in a dream, but can't quite remember the details on that either. Anyway, they both begin to make up the little stage, which neither of them recognize or know the origin of, but they suppose it is a figment of the imagination made real. Jane summons the G-Cat as a distraction for PM and Beck Noir, and while they do give chase, they don't drop Jade's corpse. Dave follows them, passing Carcat and Kanaya on the way. 
Rose arrives at the scene and recognizes Roxy, sleeping near the Arania-Dirk battle. Dirk drops his sword and uses his heart claspect powers to begin ripping Arania's soul out of her body. At Mina's castle in the Dream Bubbles, Vriska says she doesn't want to hear anymore about her irritating ancestor. High above, Aradia sits on a tower, gazing up at the flashing cracks in reality made by Lord English's passing. And because this is one of my favorite panels in Homestuck, it is where we stop for today. The 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 tower is one of your favorite panels in Homestuck. Like the vibes, this vibe, mm. like that that uh, like Aradius sitting on that tower, like looking up at the cracks in the sky and just sort of chilling. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. I don't know. It's just neat. Good of atmosphere. All the images. I mean, some of the images. Uh, I guess I would say. Uh, do more with the concept of an image, but just in terms of vibes, like I said, this is hmm. this is this is one that I related to very much at the time. You know, Aradia just wants to see what happens when this finally ends. Hmm. Well, it does feel like uh, in this reading that we are hopefully on our way to it ending. It's got to be just around the corner, right? Yeah, certainly, certainly. Uh, I mean, we're in <laughs> we're in the six thousands now, right? Uh-huh. How many pages are there? A little over 8,000. Uh-huh. All mm-hmm. right. All right, cool. Cool, yeah. cool, cool. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Brad, mm-hmm. great. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, uh, jumping off of that just a little bit, I don't know how we want to move through this, but uh, I will say that during this chunk of reading is where I notice uh, in the thread kind of a huge uptick in complaints about everything. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, in what way? Uh, so uh, the thread at this point, that specifically, right, what happens is uh, Arania has kind of her reveal, right? The kind of heel turn there. Um... Uh, this mm-hmm. is at first apprehended as like a real like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. What an incredible twist kind of thing. Uh, and then as the days go on, uh, because you know, this is the other thing to keep in mind, uh, the ways that uh, people were reading to reading and responding to these updates when they were live. Uh, something that we just talked about in just a few minutes is spread out over the course of several weeks. So, uh People are like, oh, wow, uh, Arania is doing this thing. And then as the days tick on, uh, people grow more and more impatient with this feeling of um, not really knowing what the heck is going on or to what end any of this could possibly lead. Uh, This is somewhat shadowed by another recurring uh, complaint that's now coming up, which is like, this is probably going to result in something that gets retconned. Oh, yeah, of course. Right. Um, So people feel like we are taking weeks uh, to go through the motions with a story development that is ultimately not going to matter. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like a big thing. Um, The other kind of complaints that are happening is like, you know, I feel like we should be moving into an end game, but this actually feels like it's just like diverting the story into a different uh, direction than would actually feel like an end game compared to everything that's happened before. Um, Other complaints, there are too many villains. Why are there so many villains in this comic? Why, why do people keep (laughs) turning evil? Like, why is this happening? Um, uh, 
Uh, one other kind of recurring thing that uh, I think is notable is people in the thread saying that at this point, it just feels like uh, one of two things. Hussey is wheel spinning, trying to figure out how to end this thing um, or opposite to that or or maybe even like, uh, you know, threaded through that in some way, um, playing mind games with the fan base. Roasting them mm-hmm. for wanting the thing to end. Right. Now, are there any big, like, uh, pauses here? I know you said there's a little bit of stuff, but, like, mm-hmm. there's no big old multi-month blah, blah. No. Uh, those are on the horizon. Uh, they will okay. actually be covered in the next part episode, and I have some plans for uh, how I'm going to do that. Uh, You're just going to insert, like, a full 24 hours of uh, silent audio? That's the, the idea. Final. Great. <laughs> You're getting conceptual here on the Range Touch Network. Finally, for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, this is all, uh, this is all coming kind of at a pace, uh, but also like the micro movements of the story are not really satisfying the readership, right? Um, one, uh, really other, not, this is actually a a better example in that, like people are kind of okay with this, but like, uh, act two of Caliborn's story, uh, reads so differently in uh, the thread compared to what our actual archival experience is. Because you can just kind of like click through uh, Caliborn's like crappy little story and then you get to the end and it's whatever. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But for the people in the thread, that is again like spread out over the course of maybe like a week or a week and a half. Uh, and so every update, you know, you're just reading maybe four of those pages and people are like, you know, the the emotional stakes, right? The effective stakes that they're playing with uh, is like, oh, John's in Caliborn's story. Like, what's going to happen? Uh, there's like a, a, a sense of suspense uh, or dread that lasts over those days uh, that is just gone when you're reading this archival archivalry. <laughs> Why well, not? Yeah, archivalry, our, our, our critical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, I guess. Um, but ultimately, uh, at least in the reading that we had for today, no stakes at all to it. Uh, mm-hmm. John is simply there playing in this little thing. I mean, look, I gotta be honest. I still think Caliborn's story is very funny. <laughs> <laughs> Caliborn's like little interior, uh, fake bad homestuck he makes. You know, uh, he is still so clearly here a, like, parodic relationship with the reader, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> you know, like, I love Dave. He's the alpha guy. What's Dave going to do? Let's see what he's up to. Like, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, again, I wish that the uh, cosplaying Dave team, you know, had. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about where they came into the uh, into the calculus here, right? Do, do they read this about Caliborn and they or Caliborn's story and think, wow, that's me, <laughs> you know? Because that seems to be in the mix. I, I don't know, like... Flatly, it seems true to me that Caliborn is just a particular kind of reader, and Hussey is roasting the shit out of that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether or not you think that's funny or not probably has to do with how how much you either um, in your own particular internet subculture that you have a sense of humor about yourself, and uh, and on the other side, recognize that it's making fun of uh, you know a particular kind of of reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, you know, I liked it. I think it's good. The pornography sword's very funny to me. Mm-hmm. That's a callback uh, to jailbreak. You know, it can destroy. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's funny. Uh, 
the oh i've got some other stuff here too but the uh the uh, the the thing i really you know because all the pieces in this caliborn story they each kind of like connect to or kind of meta discursively jump up to another level and what's fascinating to me is the uh the moment where he just starts cutting and pasting out of that book for children uh-huh. <laughs> and 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 there's this kind of like dialogue piece that happens or this kind of narratorial uh dialogue piece that's like uh you know uh it's more difficult to draw it so i'm just going to recycle it and that's exactly what uh what hussy did with purpo Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you just take real images and you Photoshop them into looking like an alien landscape. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing, except it came from a book for children. Right. Well, this is where I think there is a, a slight shift in what's happening with Caliborn. If if only that in the previous uh, you know act of his story, we had the open admission of like, oh, you can just like go to Google and image search. And that's how you can get your pictures of clouds or whatever, which is very much like aligned with what Hussey is doing. Uh, but now we've moved down a level where Caliborn takes this children's book, is cutting things out and, uh, you know, putting his own spin on them. Um, and this feels much more uh, pointedly like a parody of fan adventures, which take Hussey's art and uh, use it as a template, right? Uh, color over it, redraw it. Uh, this is still a huge thing in, in Homestuck fandom. If you search like Homestuck like character templates, uh, you'll find all sorts of things where people have gone through and like taken all the permutations of the characters and kind of made them um, neutral. So you can, you know, swap out the colors and draw on your own troll horns and all that stuff. Uh, so uh, in the same way that uh, the people who are making these fan adventures are taking Hussey's artwork, kind of cutting out the parts and then drawing over them or using them to their own ends. Now, Caliborn has this children's book uh, that he is defacing uh, in order to tell his own version of Homestuck. Uh, and then on your point about Dave, one, I totally agree with you that there's something happening here where uh, there's a, a little bit of a joke about uh the the people who are super into dave uh but also at least in the thread uh no one really talks about this or notices it and at least partly i think that is because on the level of the diegesis uh dave is this character who is defined uh by the fact that the game is trying to set him up on this quest to defeat lord english right this is uh one of those things that came up uh pretty frequently way back in Act 5, and then in the fandom kind of speculation space, uh, everyone is like, all right, uh, so Dave is either going to answer the hero's call and be the person who defeats Lord English, or there's going to be some kind of swerve uh, that shows that, you know, Dave is the master of his own destiny or something. Um, So this, I think, tends to be understood as an example of uh, the way that Caliborn uh, is kind of leaning into that hero's quest narrative for Dave uh, that Dave himself is like very much not interested in, right? He he is focused on Dave uh, in the same way that he is like focused on Dirk. Uh, again, we have like that resonance between sort of the two author insert characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I mean that that it's it's weird to me when these like kind of gaps historically that seem very clear. Uh huh. To me, just it, no one's remarking on his fixation on Dave. Like, he's an audience stand-in character, mm-hmm. and he fixates on Dave. Mm-hmm. Like, the audience fixates on Dave, mm-hmm. even now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, quite a while later. Huh. 
<laughs> like, huh, just no one had, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, also maybe it's just so obvious that no one. Although I will say there is nothing so obvious in Homestuck that people won't talk about it. So <laughs> maybe that's not good evidence. Um, the, uh, I, yeah, of all that, sorry, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I thought that, uh, I thought it was quite fun. I think his little adventure through this stuff, I, I, I gotta be honest, like, uh, if I gotta choose between the actual canonical development stuff that's occurring here <laughs> and Caliborn's little, like, bad fan adventure that he makes, I kind of like the little bad fan adventure more. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see here. Am I gonna? Oh, I, okay. Never mind. No, my my next uh, important note is post post Caliborn. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. What what else? Any other notable historical um, information here for that part? Uh, on this part, not particularly. Um, the oh, only I other guess, oh the other thing. Oh yeah, go ahead. Oh, uh, the other thing that I think is interesting here is like uh, the. Mm, I mean, the way that Caliborn's story is inert, right? Like, that there are just these mm-hmm. uh, weird mannequin versions of these characters running around into John, who is uh, from, like, Caliborn's same level of the diegesis or whatever. Uh, he He's, like, walking around within these drawings. Uh, you know, he's been trapped in, like, a lower level of reality or something like that, uh, which, of course, plays into ho- the whole kind of, like, Gnostic theme that's uh, running through this story. Uh, but uh, if we're thinking about, like, creators, right, uh, and Caliborn as uh, both a, a figure in the narrative who represents a certain type of, um, uh, you know, bad creation, uh, it is also sort of interesting that no one in the thread, at least, is digging into the way that this is set up to, to echo fan creation in and of itself, right? Like, Caliborn uh, has all of his specific proclivities, uh, but the form of the things that he does are the forms of fandom, um, and at this point, there's not quite a, a, I don't know, contrast or like alternative out of that. It does seem to be uh, just like, oh, like in the last version, in the last little segment of my story, I made fun of the author and now I'm making fun of the fans. But in the process, right, mm-hmm. uh, forming my own fan adventure that fulfills all of my desires and wishes about the story as it uh, actually exists. Yeah, it also does this kind of thing, too to kind of kick back to the Gnostic themes or frameworks that kind of permeate through Homestuck in a lot of different ways, right? That uh, John is a, a quote unquote, a real boy, uh-huh. right? And and he's running around and he has a kind of meta awareness, right? Because he's from a, a higher level of reality or whatever. Um, uh, he has this awareness of like the truth of the thing and he's in the story. So, you know, the whole thing ends with, uh, trying to make Rose and Dave kiss, mm-hmm. which is, you know, this early fandom impulse, right? Mm-hmm. Of putting these characters together. Uh, and you can't, right? They're, you know, they're, they're brother and sister. Oh, no, you mm-hmm. can't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's this kind of imposition of, there's a canonical reality to these things, right? Like, uh, John, John is real and understands real relations in the world. And he is trapped in a story in which real relations are... Uh, I don't know, superseded or bracketed out or removed or whatever in order to fulfill the fandom impulse, right? I mean, he's trapped in fanfic, literally. Yes. And uh, But there's this kind of interesting thing going on there with that, right? Where it's like uh, th- there are real characters who can fight the fanfic impulse, and then there are fanfic puppets that can be exploded and there's no cost to it. 
right uh, because they're because they're puppets right they're not real mm-hmm. uh and i i did i have taken a sneak peek at the notes that you sent me for later on in this very part episode and i'm, I'm sure that some of this stuff is going to come up again later on as we keep talking <laughs> uh, uh but that that's notable to me that the characters are reflecting on fanfic within the fanfic mm-hmm um, and then you had some other thought that was maybe a post. No, that was it. thought that, oh, okay. was, that you, you were, uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about John and you were, you were in there. So okay. awesome. I gave you the layup. Uh, so how do I want to break this out? Well, um, I guess we can talk about <laughs> the Arania stuff. Like, how do you feel about this? Uh, well, it made me feel good that, uh, people hated it. Um, <laughs> And I don't hate it actually. I think it I I think it's extremely predictable. You know, if Homestuck is this like series of interla- overlapping systems that ultimately are about the reproduction of the same. Mm-hmm. You know, like like in fact, didn't you know you can't do anything different? Urgh! You know, that's my like nerd in, in the corner, you know, mm-hmm. my comic book nerd circa 1977 who's like telling me about Doctor Strange or whatever. Oof. Uh, if that's the case, then like, of course she has to, cause she's got to re- replicate Vriska. And in fact, literally Vriska is in the comic later on telling us that. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I wasn't shocked by it. And it is like, uh, it, it does make sense to me that people are like, Oh God, are we having to sit through this in order to experience yet another weird rug pull? Um, because that's how I felt the whole time too. I was like, all right, well, can't wait for this to like get weirdly reset somehow. Mm. I do think the payoff of uh, Arania being a, uh, you know, her kind of fa- her her calliope influenced fandom reading, mm-hmm. right? The kind of meta structure class spec stuff that she reads everything through. I do think that's pretty interesting as being set up as a kind of villainy. Mm-hmm. The, it, it does seem to me that the stakes of what Homestuck is saying in a general sense are a little bit different in this this partisode. In that the from everywhere from that like opening monologue where she explains like oh uh, you know being of hope you have to do blue blue blah blue or whatever right mm-hmm. like all of that stuff that it explicitly turns into um, the positions of Homestuck or like the metaphysical state uh, let, let me sorry let me take one step back Arania makes it very clear that what is happening within like the game of suburb at this point, you know, this kind of universe creation engine is a debate about interpretation Mm -hmm. and whose interpretation wins determines what, what kind of action they take Mm -hmm. and what kind of action they take determines what kind of universe you make. Right. And we've actually seen that happen quite a few times, but the, the, you know, like what is the best route to take? That's been the Vriska and the other trolls problem, the A team and the B team or whatever they were called, all that stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. That's about different routes. And we just saw it with the stuff about, um, you know, going out with the dream bubbles and flying Calliope and all that versus the other strategy too, right? We, we've seen a few times kind of alternate teams for A plots and B plots being set up to pursue different strategies in the world. What's happening here is that now it is not a internal to the plot mechanism, right? It's not that, oh, hey, there's two quests that have to be fulfilled. Um, and whichever quest is fulfilled first might determine what happens with the other one, which is kind of the right previous thing that we saw. Uh, What's happening now is that there are multiple external fandom modes of reading 
mm-hmm. you know, the, the ways that people talk about the comic that are now being folded into the comic and debated out in the comic about which one is the best way to go. And one is made villainous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is, again, the kind of thing that, that I've brought up consistently about the kind of class spec universe or whatever that, that's appeared is that it really is a couple characters who are ham- hammering on that consistently, and it doesn't actually seem to have much of a bearing on anything else other than the way that those characters interpret what did happen and what will happen because of the things that, that did happen. Um, you know, it, it is already internal to these characters a reading strategy, and Arania makes it very clear here that it is a reading strategy, and that reading strategy is going to make her, as a character, do particular kinds of things, mm-hmm. um, which is very different than, like, I think what we've had before, which is like character-based plot motivations. I want to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, again, Vriska actually lays this debate out at the end of this this partisode, you know, or in Mina and and uh, uh, Vriska, right? You know, I Mina says I was so devoted to outcomes that whatever happened happened. I just kind of, basically she is saying in a, in a in a veiled way. I just push the plot forward. Mm-hmm. Because I just because I, you know in big in brackets beneath I'm a fictional character <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, what I do is ultimately arbitrary because everything I decide to do is then uh, written back into reality as my motivation for doing those things right mm-hmm. like uh, Lex Luthor wants to take over the world because he wants to take over the world mm-hmm. um, you know the strategy he chooses to do that you know the big world ending device is written back in time as the logical solution because he wanted to take over the world the whole time right mm-hmm. like uh th- this is the the mode and function of kind of one-dimensional plot-based characters mm-hmm. that, that's just how it works in in, in uh, fictional production right mm-hmm. as opposed to what arania is doing which is saying there is a structure that predetermines what everything has to do because of how the lego pieces of this metaphysics fit together and i'm just fulfilling the plot you know i'm fulfilling the actions that must be taken mm-hmm. uh because that's what's happening and i think hussey's doing something interesting here across this partisode of hopefully i don't you know you tell me if the if the fandom actually does this but i think it's encouraging fans to try to think about this right like uh across this entire comic there is clearly a section of the fan base who reads rules first and then character decisions second Mm -hmm. and then there is a section that reads character decisions first and rules second and Hussey is clearly trying to put those in conversation with, with one another, um, but has to use this kind of tried and true formula of reversal, villainy, um, you know, surreptitiousness, things that happened off screen that you now find out about. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost as if uh, Hussey's writerly toolbox that they go back to repeatedly is actually maybe getting in the way of what is trying to be front loaded here, which is like, Hey, there's different ways of engaging with this thing and you're doing them. And ultimately, you know, what we've talked about before is like, this is solving table problems with in game, <laughs> you know, dice rolls or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, it, which is always going to run into a hard issue of like that, maybe not resonating as well as it could. Um, and, and I think that the the machinery of how that happens just at a writerly level probably gets in the way too. But mm-hmm. anyway, that's what that was my kind of big takeaway from all of this kind of conceptual stuff here is like, oh yeah, okay. There's like two schools of thought that are being put in characters' mouths. And I hope the fan base is thinking about the fact that that is being put in characters' mouths and evaluating them thusly as opposed to just taking them as factually true, which like I, I think we are not meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
a couple of things. One, uh, I think you maybe read just a little bit ahead of where we stopped because I don't think Did we I? I don't think we got that much from Mina in this. Oh. I I am so sorry. I did. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I read one extra page. Mm-hmm. You just couldn't you couldn't oh, hold did I, it. Did I totally fuck us up? No, I just I wrote down the number wrong. I wrote 6757 first. <laughs> and then and I got to I was like, this seems like a lot of stuff <laughs> that we're getting here. Uh what's going on? Okay. I mean, I guess you can cut all that if you want to. No, no, no. I think it's fine to leave it in. It's just I yeah, I specifically left it on uh the Aradia image because it set us up for like next time. Uh it's fine. If you haven't read Homestuck, I'm sorry that uh <laughs> Cameron has spoiled for you that uh Vriska and Mina are going to have a conversation. <laughs> uh just literally read one page. You're you're yeah, okay. We'll, it's we'll, fine. we'll edit when we announce the episode, we'll we'll add the page. I'm so sorry that I've messed up your plan. Yeah. I did catch myself doing that, but I didn't think that this was uh for some reason I thought that happened earlier, not at the very end. Yeah. Uh anyhow, that's fine. Damn it. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, but to your, to your other points, um, show one of the things that happens in the thread once, uh, Arania has her heel turn is this kind of explosive, you know, I mean, first of all, just like what the hell is happening? Um, you know, this is actually one of the ways in which Mina does, uh, become the audience surrogate again, because Vriska does all this stuff. And then Mina calls her on her shell phone, which is a cell phone that looks like a shell, by the way. Um, (laughs) and she's just literally like, Hey, what are you doing? And so, uh, 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 Arania has someone to explain all this stuff to through an exposition dump. Um, and, uh, one of the things that happens in the thread is people immediately are like, oh, holy shit, uh, can we trust anything that Arania has told us about class specs? Um, and whether or not this puts like the two different sides of the fandom in conversation with each other on this point, I, I couldn't say, uh, but I well. What I do know is that the debate about how useful and or useless uh, class spec analysis is uh, continues on through the rest of the comic and continues on to this day. So um, that could take many forms depending on who's doing the argumentation, I think. Uh, But there is something, I think you're correct, being done here to um, make us wonder... If not, you know, necessarily where this information comes from, then how it is used as an interpretive device for the world. So uh, to compare what Arania is saying here uh, to something earlier in the comic, uh, before trickster mode, uh, there was a conversation that uh, Caliborn has with Jake. And this is the one where Caliborn is saying, like, hey, I'm like, I think you're supposed to be the guy who's supposed to, like, give me a my first defeat. So I'm going to train you to be my rival, because that's the only way I'm going to get a, a rival who is actually worthy of me. Uh, he has that whole conversation. But one of the other things that he says in that conversation that I think is really interesting is that he justifies everything he does through his class spect. He says that he's the Lord of Time, uh, so therefore, uh, apparently to his interpretation, uh, this means that in the fullness of time, uh, he will always be vindicated, right? Being the Lord of Time means that time always works in his favor, uh, so he is uh, just ultimately going to ascend to, you know, the top of his power set or his skill set because he's the Lord of Time, and the Lord of Time is the person who controls time, so that's what's going to happen. Uh, so I think there's right. yeah, there's something there uh, uh, that I think is, um, yeah, worth worth kind of 
narrowing in on and, and thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. It's not so much that like class specs in and of themselves are bad, but sort of like what are class, like how do class specs operate as an interpretive strategy about the story? Uh, what sort of behaviors uh, do they elicit or justify or what have you? Yeah, I mean, uh, they, they are self-justifying inherently, mm-hmm. right? Like if I say, uh, uh, Michael, you are a, uh, <laughs> a bard of bard and everything in your life will fundamentally uh, invert back into being about Shakespeare himself, mm-hmm. the biggest boy from back in the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, no matter what you do, you will attempt to come back to it. Um, if you believe that hard enough, right? Or even just a little bit, if you find it suspicious... Uh, you're gonna work your way back into thinking that you know consistently. This is how uh, every single like uh, guy who talks to the dead, you know what I mean? Where it's <laughs> what? like, you know, the people who talk to the dead, like on TV. What oh, was okay. Like John Edwards. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. You know, they're like, I'm getting, I'm getting a D over here. I'm getting a D, a a dad, a a a Doug, I died, and mm-hmm. someone raising their hand is like, my dad's name is Doug. Mm-hmm. He, he he was a he was a cartoon in the '90s. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, I, I've said this a million times. You you can build a model for anything, and you can find ways to make a model work for anything. It's just about uh, what are the externalities that get produced out of that that make it useful or unuseful. And what's fascinating to me about class specs is that the comic is actively thinking about that. And it, it's pretty clear to me that class specs are downstream from all those interpretive moves that were happening in you know Act 1, 2, 3 about like what is the structure of the thing itself. And Hussey really um, keen into the fact that people, that a large chunk of the audience are keen into Homestuck and engaging with Homestuck precisely because they care about the kind of data structuriness of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that's why I think class specs wax and wane so much, right? Is that it's not that they're a key to the text. I, I, I just truly don't think that... Uh, from what we've read so far, you know, maybe this changes because Homestuck is always changing. It is not a solid object. It is a thing that transforms through time. I, I think that they rise and fall in a kind of sine wave pattern. They are useful when they're useful and they're important when they're important and they go away when they're not or when Hussey just doesn't find it uh, uh, fun to engage with. I mean, in, in a fundamental way. I think sometimes Hussey forgets about it or just doesn't care about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the I think the thing they tell you is like, what is the... if 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 Hussey is like behind the curtain, you know, playing one of those like uh, big organs that make all the honking noises and whatnot uh-huh. from I Think You Should Leave, you know, that yes. thing, brr, brr, yes. what's that called? Uh, like uh, Hussey is playing one of those. Like Homestuck is one of these big, awful clown machines played by the elderly to frighten children, right? Like <laughs> it's one of those. And like class specs are the smashing plate, right? Like they're a thing that gets you in and engages with people and ultimately speaks to the whole thing. Like you, the, the comic's inextricable from class specs. I think it's probably disingenuous to talk about the story and pretend like they don't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are an element and they are an element that is pulled on as a mechanism for engagement. They are not an over-determining um, structure for the thing in the same way that the, the never ending story is a mode of engagement. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably I think closer to the structure of the thing, but certainly doesn't exhaust the whole thing. The same way that these elements of Gnosticism that we've been talking about does not structure the whole thing, but is, you know, heavily weaved in through it the same way that teen media that we've talked about, particularly teen science fiction media had such a major impact for so long. And just to be honest, has kind of died out at this point. We're like this part of in particular is all superhero shit, yeah. right? Like I, Dragon Ball Z. Is, yeah. 
Yeah, yes, absolutely, right? It's like everyone is talking to each other as if they are in a Justice League comic in 2007. <laughs> like, it, it's bonkers to me how much it's just like, all right, here's this big-ass team, and now they all talk in, like, two sentences to one another as if this is just normal in the way they've all talked before. Um, and, you know, and then also the other element here is just humor. Like, like one-off Two sentence jokes that Husky is so good at writing. That is also this other like you know clown honk of an item that gets people engaged. the The joke about Carcat and um, oh who who is he running around with? Kanaya. The, Kanaya, right? Like the the joke that they can't fly, yes. <laughs> and the and and that also that Kanaya has vampire speed or whatever. Yes. Like it's just that's a one panel joke. It's really funny, right? right? Like in the middle of all of this. Uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, whatever I think about Homestuck in the final calculus, and we'll get there at some point, I'm sure we will actually get to the end of this thing. And however I felt about it in The Wax and Wayne, it is undeniable that Hussey is a talented writer and understands how all these pieces weave together. And they are things that are weaved t- together. There, There is no substrate that determines the rest of it. Although my sneaking suspicion is that if you wanted to pick one at an arbitrary uh, kind of decision point, it would be the never-ending story because that's my bias, right? But mm-hmm. ultimately, is that is it really the kind of substrate or is that my bias speaking, right? right. It might just be my bias. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's like my big, you know, kind of polemic here in the middle of the thing is like, it, this part of this part of this reading, I think you did such a good job of cho- of bracketing this one, of choosing it on both ends, even though I have extended it by one page implicitly here. <laughs> uh, but uh, but precisely because it just puts so much to me in uh, in focus, right? Like, what are the stakes of the thing? How's it going to work from here on out? And there are a lot of decisions that are being made here that feel like they are kind of canonical and not rug pulley, and that might not be true. But mm-hmm. there there seems to be big stakes commitments going on here about character motivation, how people are interacting with each other, how sides are being kind of chosen really clearly here, not in... Uh, because when sides have been chosen in the past, it's basically been like off screen, some other shit happened and now everyone is having to deal with it. <laughs> um, there are actually things that happen on screen here that have major impacts on the plot, mm-hmm. which, uh, uh, you know, it seems like the comic's been allergic to for about a thousand pages at this point. Mm-hmm. So um, if I were reading this live, I'd been like, holy shit. Wow. <laughs> stuff, stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, there is a uh, real sense now. I think of, I mean, the the pieces on the board being moved around or like uh, we are, in fact, moving the pieces onto the board for some sort of ending. And I think that's a thing that comes through much more clearly in the uh, archive experience, you know, contrasted with what I've said about the the threads understanding of this, where it feels like, oh, my God, we're just we're introducing more complications. Why on earth are we doing that? Uh, and uh, the other thing that I think is. um really interesting also right and i guess maybe to drill down more specifically on what uh like arania is doing with regard to class specs right she is uh saying like this this moment where she says to jake like there's something wrong with your brain and i'm going to fix it and that's going to unlock uh your your the the full potential of your hope powers um on the one hand uh this is like validating uh a uh the the like some like 
is is Jake autistic or does he have a brain damage conversation that I believe we had in the previous partisode, right? Like that's that was one of those moments where I felt like there was a really quick turnaround from me like seeing that in fandoms discussions to like a kind of direct address of that within the comic. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it's kind of notably, right, like the the thing that Arania is doing, this like, quote unquote, fixing Jake's brain thing is bad. Like it's a villainous act, uh, whatever, whatever it is she's doing because uh you know i we're never going to get like the scene where jake english goes in and gets like a professional assessment as to like you know whatever's going on with him if uh, uh that's where we want to take this um but this like uh you know justifying her uh like justifying what she does to him in order to unlock his class spec powers right and using this like power of hope which is in in like the purest jake english way like bizarre and funny in a way that uh like it feels to me like only andrew hussey would come up with the idea of okay this guy when all of his powers are unlocked he just like uh freezes in place, flies up into the air, emits a giant ball of light, and shouts like, Holy Toledo. And that's just all he does over and over and over again. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I don't... I know what to do with this kind of meta-discursively, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I have a sneaking suspicion that this is kind of a deeply cruel maneuver. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Um, But I don't know actually, like, plot-wise, presumably this gets paid off in some future reading we have not done, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I, to me, this, like, hope, this, I, hope that explodes and blows everything up around it in its driving determination to create itself anew from every moment, and literally overriding the text with your hope, that to me is like, uh, you know, this is a figuration of fan speculation, Mm -hmm. right, like, uh, your hope for whatever your outcome is uh, it, within this comic will literally obliterate the world around you and, like, kill people that you enjoy. <laughs> and, like, it'll have all kinds of effects that you aren't prepared for, dear reader, mm-hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, you, you don't have access to the metaphysics of the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, don't, you don't know the consequences of your actions. I, I already exploded Jake English 30 minutes ago. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? That's how it felt to me at the whole time. I was like, oh, is this just fan speculation? But also, you know, we got to see where it goes and we don't know where it goes. Yeah. Uh, but that was my kind of um, speculative, I guess, uh, thought about it here at the top. Well, I think it's uh, it, it holds together because there's uh, if you want to, you can press here for kind of an allegorical reading. We've said before that. Uh, Arania stands in for kind of the fan theorist, uh, like she is a fan right. theorist character. And so here we have a fan theorist character who has like uh, seized control of this uh, hopeful overriding, like generating something from nothing uh, uh, power, this force uh, that, as you say, we might uh, see as something inherent to like the fandom, right? It is the fandom's ability to hope things into existence, uh, and here Arania is, you know, t- taking charge of that in a in a fairly like direct way. And this is another way of understanding what's going on with uh, her and Vriska, uh, or at least to this is my historical. Uh, understanding right is that we are getting Arania doing the thing that all of the fans complained about Vriska doing back in Act Five, uh, which is inserting herself into the story, making uh, a big deal out of herself, uh, becoming like you know the the revelations that um, uh, Vriska was responsible 
for uh, Jade's narcolepsy, for instance. Like, oh, everything's being retconned so that Riska is wholly responsible. Uh, and this is where I think it's, mm. again, kind of um, useful to think of this uh, nascent distinction that Homestuck seems to be making between, like, the the retcon of here's a bunch of stuff you already saw, but uh, I've changed the context for it, so now it means something different, versus, like, the actual, like, overriding emergence kind of retcon. Uh, because we get... Uh, uh, the uh, spider troll actually inserting herself into the story, right? Doing the thing that Vriska never actually did. She just, like, became responsible for things that she wasn't apparently at first responsible for. Uh, but Arania mm. actually, like, emerges into a story that is not her own and proceeds to take charge of things, uh, to try to dictate things, uh, actually actively does things to the story uh, rather than claiming responsibility for things that uh, have already happened or are, like, destined to happen. Uh, and this results in another kind of reading that comes out of the thread, uh, which is uh, people are starting to think that the message of this story is that being proactive is bad and villainous and being passive is good and heroic and they do not like it because they think that is boring and it sucks. I, I'm going to say this. I don't think there's a lesson to Homestuck. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, it's my sneaking suspicion that it does not have a lesson to it. Um, which is, is good. That's probably a good thing that it doesn't have a lesson. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, well, I, I mean, I just think this is always a bad path, right? Like if there's a, if you're trying to extract a lesson from something like big and weird and complicated, it's going to be like, uh, the brothers Karamazov is about why it's good to be pious in front of the Lord, even if you don't <laughs> understand him. And like, that's not, it's <laughs> insufficient, mm -hmm. right? To like the words on the page, right? Like, although you could say that and you could say that quite confidently and I've seen people do so, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, uh <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, the Homestuck is in its uh, assembly, creation, management, maneuverability, whatever. This is going to sound wild as hell, but it is, in fact, Bible-like. Um, <laughs> if only because it's so composite, uh -huh. right? Like, it's inheriting so much and stapling it all together uh, with an eye for coherence, but often an eye for coherence way after the fact. Um, and... You know, like any other kind of big assembled text, it, it works that way. So I, I reject this on face. Mm -hmm. uh, however, if you are trying to do that, I do understand where people get that from because the only people who do stuff in this entire comic uh, are villains mm -hmm. because they set up the conditions for other people to respond to. It is quite literally a reactionary text. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> not not in the way that we talk about it like normally, right? But it's reactionary in the sense that the only way that protagonists deal with the world is when they are forced to. Uh, no one does anything of their own free will or volition um, other than villains because they are the people who make the world turn. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, yeah. You know, everyone else is called to action. Con the Homestuck is a is a comic that is dominated by calls to action and very little else. <laughs> yeah, and like working it up a level, there are people who aren't even you know necessarily taking uh, the text as giving a message in this way. There are people who are just observing mm -hmm. it on the level of writing. They're like, I don't understand why Hussey seems committed to writing active villains and passive heroes because it's really boring. Like, what is the point of this? Like, what is mm -hmm. going on? Let let me uh, let me spin a tale for you. Ready? I'm 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 the craft maker, the tale spinner, mm -hmm. the word weaver, all of those things. Of course, uh, masterful at it. 
and I'm known for it. Uh, once there was a little boy who lived on a desert planet. A, a badass dude dressed in cool-ass samurai gear had decided arbitrarily to start lasering the shit out of a bunch of planets. Ultimately, that little boy decided, hey, I gotta go kill that guy because he's, he's lasering too many planets. And then he went and did it and used his miracle powers to blow up the big laser. The end. <laughs> is that a story that is fundamentally about like active villains and passive heroes? Because like it's the same reactionary maneuver, right? Mm-hmm. Like I was living my life and it was A-OK and it was good until someone made me go live my life. In a different way. Yeah, it's the same. I I don't know. I just feel like, uh, I I mean, that's the problem, right? Right. It's like, uh, yeah, villains are, in fact, for most adventure fiction, just in a general sense, they are the impetus to go. Mm -hmm. The the opposite that you have of that, right, which is like entirely active uh, heroes that that are never, you know, in the the kind of... um, uh, lazy Campbellian imagination, right? Mm-hmm. Like called to action. Uh, those are imperialists and colonialists <laughs> and, um, you know, violators, uh-huh. right? You know, the, the Heinleinian dude who's just got to go to the alien planet to blow him up, right? right. Like the Starship Troopers, uh-huh. Rico, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Do, do you want Homestuck full of Rico? <laughs> well, and um, I think some of this is, again, like it's exacerbated by the historical update schedule where the pa- the passivity of these characters feels so much greater when you're getting, you know, four pages every few days or something. Right. Uh, of course. Of course. So I think that's another thing that's uh, working counter to Homestuck in this moment. Um uh, the other things then, uh, just to think about in terms of like, I don't know, fan speculation or like heroes and villains and so on. One of the long running fan theories that I have not touched on at this point, but is related to kind of the body horror stuff that I brought up, um, a couple of part episodes ago, like the, the, you know, heinous stuck and kind of like the fandom tendency to, uh, body horror, uh, one of the extremely long-running fan theories was that Jake English was somehow going to be used to create Lord English. That there was going to be some sort of, um, like, horrible, like, twist where uh, most of the time this involves, like, Jake's, uh, like, the skin on his face being ripped off so he becomes a skull, right? Uh, people come up with all sorts of ways that this might happen is, you know, the, the thing that we can sit with. Um, but, uh, the moment that Jake unleashes that hope power, uh, one of the responses in the thread is like, okay, we're going to see like the creation of Lord English here, right? This is, this is somehow that, um, and again, like the, the fascinating thing about Homestuck is that you, because of how it works, uh, you never know if this is, like, a thing that Hussey kind of had planned all along, uh, and it just sort of, like, fits into this weird fandom narrative, or if, like, Hussey's decision to have uh, this happen in the way that it does here with, like, a new villain emerging and seizing control of Jake is in some way a kind of um, capture of that fan theory and then swerve from it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because uh, that's a thing that Hussey a, a response. Right, right, right. Like uh, I'm like this is a thing that Hussey had said. Uh, I can't remember which part of episode where I talked about this, but um, one of the things that they said was um, uh, it was too obvious uh to have like 
uh, say, Jade's grandpa turn out to be a time-traveling John or whatever. Uh, and so that's where the mm -hmm. ectobiology stuff comes from that actually makes them, like, related to each other, not, like, direct copies through time. Uh, uh, Hussey says, like, when a, when a, uh, a, a twist felt uh, too easily figured out, they would try to change some part of it in order to throw the, the readership off balance or to kind of, like, make the story turn in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's that, like the uh, Jake's power being used uh, for villainous purposes uh, is a part of that. Um, there are also just like more and more Lord English theories. Like there's a theory that there's like two Lord Englishes, um, which is funny because that's not a theory. That's actually the facts of the comic now. Like, <laughs> like we do have two Lord Englishes. There's the one running around the dream bubbles. And then there's the like one that's just Jack Noir with the pool ball eyes. But OK. Oh, right. That's true, I guess. Um, yeah. And how people kind of read that one uh, is that uh, the, the, the two Lord English theory uh is that um at some point like caliborn is going to like seize control of calliope's uh uh body or dream self or something right uh that uh like th that there's basically at the end game there's going to be caliborn as himself and then uh it's going to turn out that the the big muscle bound lord english zipping around the dream bubbles is like some sort of construction of his or or what have you hmm it, it's fascinating to me how much dedication there is to, like, the principle of non-contradiction still uh -huh. in this comic. Uh-huh. In, in, like, fandom responses to the comic, right? That everything must be, like, unitary and singular or, like, be logically related to one another. Like, the Dream Bubbles, I just don't think the fandom seems to uh, have grappled with the amount of, like, absolute horseshit you can get up to with these Dream Bubbles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like... I, I just, I just, I don't know. They're just maximal to me, right? Like, what if you had more than 52 universes you could pull from? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, you know. Yeah. It just seems like a, it seems like a bigger deal to me than it, most fan theorists seem to grapple onto. Mm -hmm. Which is fine. I guess it doesn't matter. Um, oh, uh, I forgot. Uh, one of Jake's uh, big phrases that he shouts is win one for the Gipper, uh, which, yeah. you know, is jokingly taken as confirmation that the the Vriska fandom secrets uh where Jade equals Reagan is is canon. Uh Okay. Do people not know that that's like an incredibly I mean this is the beauty of like the Homestuck fandom, right? Mm -hmm. Like do they not know do that like do, like do it for the Gipper is like a huge memeifiable statement from like uh Hussey's generation of of people running around. I mean, I think they know. I think they just like take it as like it's the Reagan joke, right? No, I get it. Yeah. I'm just saying that like that that in and of its it is such a piece of all these other like old timey phrases that are being said. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it 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 doesn't have to be another thing because it is so wholly of a piece with the other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like if uh, if I were like. Uh, <laughs> if I were like, I don't know, uh, Michael, you start doing that, you're going to swell up like a blueberry. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh. Just like my fan uh, art. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, you know, it's just oh, it, it's just like big blueberry wants these days. They're they're selling all these <laughs> large blueberries. My, it's a confirmation that this is part of the blueberry verse. Yeah. And for you and me, it's just like, you know, Willy Wonka is like the meme of our childhood. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's before we had anything else. Yeah. 
we had that little smug looking motherfucker, right? Like <laughs> and his his child murders yeah. that he did. Yeah. So uh I don't know. It's I it's hard also, right? Like reconstructing this way after the fact i'm not reading the post you're reading the post but it is funny to me sometimes because we've run into this several times in which a thing that from the perspective of someone's hussies someone who is hussies age or someone who was on the the internet in the time that we were a little bit before maybe a lot of the mainline homestuck fandom was something has a different meaning mm-hmm. than it has if you're kind of post that thing right um no, I, I think that's so, fair. And I also like I want to be clear, like people are saying this as a joke, right? Like the the Vriska post itself where Vriska equal, you know, Vriska in parentheses Vriska, right? Like this is just right. this is a, a this is part of the fandom impulse of like, oh, here's a way we can bring back that meme that we like, which is Vriska parentheses Vriska. Right. <laughs> Look, I'm going to be honest. I like that meme. <laughs> Just some other uh, points that I think illustrate uh, if, if what we said about uh, the class spec stuff and how do you use class specs as an interpretive tool, um, you know, is, mm-hmm. is maybe the more important question than whether or not you should use class specs at all. Uh, some of the really uh, not great stuff that I see come up in the thread on this point uh, in seeing what Arania does to Jake. Uh, this is read as a uh, sort of, you know, circumstantially simultaneous thing, right? An, an echo or a callback of uh, Vriska and Tavros, um, because obviously hmm. Vriska Arania and then uh, Tavros was also a page that was his class. Uh, and that is also Jake's page and or Jake's uh, class. And one of the things that we have heard about uh, the page class is that they are uh, uh, kind of the the bottom of the barrel at the beginning, uh, they're kind of pathetic, uh, but they have great potential. Uh, and so one of the interpretations that spins out in the thread, and this is discussed by multiple people in pretty like frank terms is that like, Oh, so, uh, pages are characters who have some sort of disability because Tavros used a wheelchair and now, uh, Jake has, uh, whatever, uh, we want to say is happening with Jake. Um, so I would, I would say that this is not a great way of reading this because I am not a fan of, uh, uh, positing a structure that like makes disability a like necessary component of the world rather than a thing that is like socially constructed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I look, I, we, <laughs> we got to look at it from like the context of like, the world we live in mm-hmm. um and not just like the story as its own self-contained box right like you know it's the social model of disability disability is produced by the world that we live in uh disability is always historicized mm-hmm. uh it, you know uh what the the way that one exists in the world with the same kind of physical uh existence or uh intellectual existence or whatever is going to be treated quite differently in 1000 ad than it is in 2022 um and uh you know that 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 is the kind of leading understanding of how disability op- operates at this time, right? It's always historicized, mm-hmm. um, and when you cre- when you turn it into metaphysics, right? Like in this quadrant of uh, creation, someone will always inherently be disabled, mm-hmm. uh, no matter what that disability happens to be. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think I think if you, if you create a um, a system of fiction in which uh, marginalizing um racial gender disability you know uh in any kind of 
uh, sy- systemic in our real world, uh, metaphysicization in the fictional world, I think that just runs you into some, I don't know, unsavory pieces. Mm. I think I think uh, if that's the way you want to uh, approach it, I think that there's a lot of like hard right-wing science fiction that is largely in agreement with that mm. and ultimately ends up being produced that way. Mm. Uh, I don't, yeah, it's kind of gross. Yeah. I, don't, I don't care yeah. for that. And just to whatsoever. be clear, because sometimes I feel like people maybe misunderstand like me reporting on things versus like assigning those traits to like the comic or whatever. This is a way that people in the thread are reading this. Uh, I do not mm-hmm. think this is what the comic ultimately like arrives at. Uh, so I'm just, I'm flagging it as like, here is a way that the application of your interpretive faculty uh, may be something that you could step back from and like rethink some of your presuppositions or some of your tendencies or whatever. Um, right. The uh, here Here's a much more hard-hitting question about the nature of the page. Uh-huh. We might have talked about it before. Does being a page mean you get those little shorts? Yes. Oh, okay. I assume so, but I, I was just making sure. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing is that like being a page does mean uh, apparently like textually that you're always going to wear those little shorts and uh, the comic is going to kind of neg you about it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of this Gamzee stuff? Uh, I more and more as the comic goes on, I think. Does Hussey know what a juggalo is? <laughs> Did Hussey forget? Like when when Hussey gets or Hussey when Hussey is uncombined unmind controlled by Arania. <laughs> no, when when Gamzee is unmind controlled by Arania, he begins saying things that are so bizarre and like off the map, you know, vis a vis juggaloness that. Uh, I just didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is this? What is going on here? I uh, I don't know. Like, yeah, it's uh, so what happens uh, just uh, for the, the listeners benefit, if you're not reading along of uh, Arania, we find out has been mind controlling Gamzee. She comes back to the waking living world and then she's kind of like, now I'll cease my mind control of you in order to, you know, See if you're ready to just like, I don't know, hang out with me or whatever. You know, she has. Yeah. Are you cool, bro? Yeah. Um, And so she stops mind controlling him and he just immediately like his eyes turn red again. And he starts like uh, yelling some. I, 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 I to your point, Cameron, I'm not quite sure how to describe this. Uh, It's sort of like. What if a person who had only ever heard rap music in films was asked (laughs) to come up with what a rap musician might yell if they were very angry and also incoherent? Yeah, I I just don't know. It's it's just it's word salad and it's quite odd. And uh I just I feel like this was a good opportunity for like a good joke mm-hmm. or like uh, like just literally having games because we don't do, do we know how long games he's been mind controlled in this way? No. So this is the other huge problem here that like really capsizes the threads discussion. Um, uh, not only has Arrhenius heel turn cast into doubt uh, 
whatever we thought we knew about class specs, uh, the revelation that she's mind controlling Gamzee um, also means that we no longer know for sure what the state of Gamzee is or has been for most of this comic. This becomes a huge topic of debate within the thread. Uh, and just to I, I, I try not to do this, but like. This is this is a question that persists for Homestucks to this day is is trying to figure out what is going on with Gamzee, because here is there. There are many, many forms that this can take. But let me sketch like the broad form of what I shall call the Gamzee decision. Right. Either uh, Gamzee has been under mind control entirely or sporadically from maybe around Cascade onward and therefore isn't maybe wholly responsible for the things that he's done. That is to say, uh, all of the things we've seen Gamzee do up until this point uh, might have been things that Arania was mind-controlling him to do. Uh, or uh, he was in control of himself for most of the time, was making his own decisions, and he was only suborned by Arania recently, right? Like, uh, uh, off-panel, like, a few pages before we actually get this uh, revelation. Now, again, sorry, spoilers we are not going to figure this out. Uh, Gamzee exists in that space of ambiguity, uh, the bifurcation gesture, right? It's either this thing or this thing. Uh, and notably, this also sort of undercuts all of the commentary that I read in the previous, uh, no, no, it was two partisodes ago in 9-3, uh, where we say like Gamzee, ha uh, reading Hussey's um, uh, commentary there, right? Hussey's entire sort of way of talking about this was like, Gamzee uh, is this type of character. He sees the world in this way. He thinks this and therefore acts in, in these ways. There is a huge part of this comic that suggests that Gamzee isn't in control of himself. So, like, Gamzee isn't actually making these decisions. Like, what's going on? What's going on is that Homestuck always undercuts itself. Uh, in what you said that... um. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all these like ways of getting into this comic and what's going on with it. The uh, uh, are we going to talk about class specs? Are we going to talk about the never ending story? Uh, so on and so forth. Um, how you take those uh, entry points and sort of like constellate them uh, is going to determine the types of readings that you're going to generate. Uh, we can think here of uh, our old friend uh, Lev Manovich, who says that the 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 new media artwork is going to be about the interface rather than the object, right? It's going to be about uh, the thing that allows you to uh, see the object, to experiment with it, to like move parts of it around, depending on what we're talking about, right? To uh, scrub forward or back if we're thinking of something uh, more filmic. Um, uh, it is going to be about your mode of access to the thing rather than like the the object as like a sculpture or a novel as a stable text. Right. Um, yeah. So uh, this is one of the things that I think happens is that Homestuck is constantly like building in back doors to singular interpretations. A really good example of this is that uh, the scene where uh, John is stuck in Caliborn's story and we have uh, him getting on those horses and they fly those horses down through Caliborn's like little shitty uh, land. Uh, and he runs into Roxy or, you know, the bogus Roxy and like destroys that mannequin. This is an explicit parallel to 
uh, a scene in Roxy's fanfic uh, Wizardy Herbert that we saw earlier, and how that gets presented there is that these characters, uh, the, the Wizardy Herbert characters, have been trapped in someone's bad fanfiction, which it turns out is the fanfic where they originated from in the first place, right? Uh, the the thing that uh, Wizardy Herbert says is that, like, you know, we're we're stupid fictional puppets that got to exist in the real world for a little bit, and now we've been trapped back in here. Uh, they... Uh, ride their own flying wooden horses during the the fake Quidditch game, uh, and they because they're like beholden to that narrative, uh, they're kind of like slowly uh, moving toward each other, and the characters as it's happening are like, "What's going on? Like, why are our horses getting ready to crash?" And I can't remember if it's Beatrix or, or Herbert who says this, but it's like it looks like the author is trying to set up like a boring token heterosexual romance, and then their uh, horses crash into one another. So. Those two things are being paralleled, and we already have John uh, on, like, a sort of more sincere level. Like, John and Roxy have a thing going on, right? Roxy has already met John and decided that he's mackable. So we have this sincere presentation of a John and Roxy relationship, uh, but then that is undermined by other elements of the text. And I think that that is fascinating. This is what gets me going about Homestuck, in case you couldn't tell. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I didn't key into any of that, uh, <laughs> in terms of while I was reading the thing, the thing that's interesting to me, I guess that that's tied into this and going back in just a minute is, uh, that I, is there ever a moment after Gamzee kind of loses control, like 3000 pages ago, uh, where Gamzee has been under his own, like supervision and control? We don't know. Like he, has he ever been an independent entity with like actions of his own? We don't know. We don't yeah, know. I, you can't know. I, well, but not even just like the the mind control here, right? Like every instance in which Gamzee shows up across this comic, he is doing someone else's bidding. Mm. Like every single time. I mean, there, has there been, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's wild to me that like uh, he, that as a character... It's I guess it's I guess what I'm saying is it's fascinating to like kind of have seen all this discussion, you know, there's a lot of discussion about like what's up with Gamesy that's been had in our Discord and you know, we I catch it every now and again in different places, but fundamentally like every time he comes up it's because he's doing something that someone else is making him do. Like through time shenanigans or through puppetry or through literal mind control. Mm -hmm. Like he's he, he might as well be a robot. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like it's weird to me. Right. Well, it's a uh, uh, this is what I mean when I say that, like, Gamzee is kind of a plot device and we get like the most hysterical right. yeah, version yeah. of that here where Jane is doing something and Gamzee literally just like falls out of the sky. Like, there's no particular reason. Like, we don't get a, a, a big like setup for like, here's where Gamzee is and here's the thing that's going to like launch him into the air. It's like, no, we just can't have Jane resurrect Jade just yet. So Gamzee like, boop, boop, boop like in the little gif like falls from the sky and just lands on her and that stops that plot development right. from happening <laughs> right mm, weird the uh the wizard of oz is really getting a lot going on here huh yeah we've got the wizard of oz uh that seems to be like we have um, Caliborn putting a set of curtains over John trying to obscure him, you know, saying pay no attention to whatever mm -hmm. he calls him behind the curtain. And then Jade getting yeah. smashed by the house. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I do like when uh, Hussey draws someone getting smashed by something and their legs stick out, and you see them like uh, cartoonishly like invert a little bit. Like it hit them so hard that their feet went whoop. <laughs> yes. That's fun. Oh, there are so many good like little uh, details here, like the uh, the repeated um, like match transition to like really grotesque mouth shots. (laughs) So, again, if you're not reading a repeated thing in this chunk of uh, pages is that the the like frame of the image will like zoom in on someone's mouth like really closely. Um, This has happened before in a couple places, but here they like uh, really go to town on it. And it'll get, like, really close to the character's mouth and, like, their tongue sort of, like, half sticking out as they say something. And then we'll cut to someone else's mouth in a really grotesque close-up. Uh, and it just feels like, um, I, you know, the, the like, here is a fun thing that I can just do. Wouldn't it be funny if I just did a whole bunch of transitions between scenes by, like, focusing on characters' mouths? Yeah, it is. The I, I, I've got two like one sentence things to say just to mark them here because I'm sure that it'll come up later. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is that, you know, again, I'm I'm tracing this uh, Davification of the comic. Right. You know, at the beginning, I said, oh, I don't like Dave. Mm-hmm. And everyone said, oh, I love Dave. And, uh, you know, we I've I've remarked many times about like what's going on and how this is all happening, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but what's really notable to me here that I picked up is that for the past couple part episodes that we've done, uh, Dave gets every straight man laugh line in the whole comic. Mm-hmm. Like if there is a if there is a one sentence like funny deflationary jokey thing, Dave's going to get to say it. Um, and that is so far away from his character at the beginning that he might as well be a different character. This might as well be Dave too. <laughs> Same the second. Say more about that. Like, what is the contrast specifically that you're seeing? Like, what was Dave? Before? Dave used to never shut the fuck up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. He would never stop talking. He <laughs> talked way too much. He was annoying. <laughs> he literally could not. And it would be infinite riffs on the same idea. And he still will do that a little bit. Right. We'll get like four, uh, you know, four whacks of the joke. But ultimately, he gets like the straight man laugh line. Right. Of Like, mm-hmm. and that just happened. You know, <laughs> Dave gets to do that several times here. Um, and I mean, he's just a different guy, Mm -hmm. uh, and it's happened so subtly and slowly over the thing that I guess it does become character development. Right. And we know Mm -hmm. some of the reasons why it's happened. I think that if there is a character that we can point to that has an arc and who develops and is like well-written across this comic, it is Dave. Uh, and I, I do feel kind of, um, uh, Correct, I guess, (laughs) from what I said at the beginning, which is like, he's got the furthest he can go. Um, (laughs) John really hasn't gone all that way, right? Like, you know, he's changed a lot. He's a little bit less naive, but like positively in terms of like proactively, what has he uh, done as a character? Well, not very much, but Dave has been humbled several times. And I think that that has been important. Mm -hmm. Um, Also kind of splitting off Dave Sprite and kind of getting double Dave development, you know, the the classic triple D of uh, all narratives um, that I think that seems really important too. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one sentence thing I want to say here is, uh, oh, I had it l- right in front of me. 
Oh, uh, the the mayor remains the emotional core of the comic. That's this is what I was going to bring up with regard to Dave. Is like I love that panel <laughs> where Dave has to fly off to the battle and he kisses the mayor goodbye. Uh, this is six six five four, and he just like leans in closely and like gives the mayor a gentle smooch on the forehead, and you get uh you can see the mayor's eye and it's kind of like uh jittering because he's like a little nervous at Dave leaning in to kiss him. <laughs> Yeah, it's it it's uh what you said six six four five six six five four six six five four. That's why this is why I read one page mm -hmm. wrong. Uh, six six five four. Uh oh yeah. Oh, you think uh, you know? I don't. I think that's he's he's gonna cry. He's so emotional. That could be true. He knows that Dave's leaving too. I I don't. Uh, hard to know though. Yeah. Actually, I actually prefer I'm I'm switching switching teams here. I'm on your side now. Like that's the mayor knowing that uh, he might not see Dave again. Mm -hmm. Dave's got uh, sweet bro and hello Jeff lips. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, I think I don't really want to get into because we don't have enough of it yet. But uh, Daredevil Terezi is back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Back in an action, swinging down from the sky to deliver that kick. Yeah. I uh, and I'm sure that this is going to over the next few part episodes, but we don't have to get super deep into it. I did tell you before this recording that I went to see because, you know, we talked about Terezi's whole like whatever mm -hmm. recent arc, you know, uh, having sight and then dealing with that and all this kind of stuff. And now Terezi, I believe, can see but is wearing a blindfold. Yes. Right. Right. That's the that's what's happening. And so I went looking to be like, OK, is this a Daredevil plot? Like, did this exact thing occur somewhere in Daredevil? And this is like a reference that we don't get. And uh, the, the answer is like, this has happened in Daredevil before. Daredevil has regained his sight before, but it kind of operated a different way. But I did find a very funny panel <laughs> or set of panels so in good. which uh, there's a woman with a baby in the park. And Matt Murdock, who can now see, who is Daredevil, he can now see, he is looking at a baby. And this woman is saying, mister, you've been staring at my kid for five minutes. Is there something we can do for you? And he says, uh, no, thank you. And then he walks away and he's got a thought bubble above his head that says, a baby. Wow. <laughs> yes. And they, they don't have explanation points. It's, it's periods. A baby. Wow. He's like looking back over his shoulder at the baby <laughs> with kind of this like <laughs> extremely smug and satisfied expression. Wow. A five whole minutes looking at it. Wow. A baby. So, uh, but anyway, uh, long story short, I don't believe that there is a um, direct reference here that we're not getting. Mm -hmm. uh, anything else before we got to close up the uh, this old bad boy and wait on the next one? Uh, just one note to talk about. You uh, said something about Dave Sprite there. Uh, oh, yeah. This is a thing that actually comes up in the thread that I thought was really interesting. There is um, someone in the thread who posits, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. Um, this idea that by seeing Dave and seeing Dave Sprite, uh, you get a bigger idea of, like, Dave as a greater whole, right? That there is some sort of, like, uh, Ur-Dave as a character, and that these are two aspects of that character and... Um, you know, kind of, uh, this is an appreciative post, right? This is a person saying that they like this. Uh, and I think it's pretty good to, like, this is a good thing to pick up on. Uh, but I also think you can see here kind of the the skeleton of something that we've said before about, like, uh, the way that the hussy commentary will sometimes approach characters as platonic ideals or sort of, uh, uh, I mean, that's in fact, I think, a, a phrasing that's been explicitly used. Uh, the, the, 
thing to underscore here for us, I think, you can tell me if you agree or disagree, is that uh, when uh, you see a, like, when you see Dave, Dave as he exists in the comic now, and then you have Dave Sprite, Mm -hmm. um, when you rationalize those as kind of two different aspects of Dave, right, there's a a sort of third term Dave that synthesizes them, uh, that is not actually, like, there is not actually an ideal Dave, right, that you are actually... uh, producing a third thing that follows the other two in sequence uh, and it doesn't sort of pre-exist them but I think that this is interesting because you're kind of seeing some of the terms that Hussey has used in the commentary emerge from the fandom or at least some of the structures of thinking right some sort of spherical Dave <laughs> uh, you know the um, it, this makes me think a lot about the uh, the British Imperial 1895 scientific expeditions in order to be able to look at eclipses from around the world. Jodie Bird writes about this Mm -hmm. in her book, The Transitive Empire. She just came up the other day and I've been thinking about it. But, uh, you know, the idea was that we know these things are going to happen like solarly. Mm -hmm. So if we can get two angles on it, we'll be able to determine the truth of the object, Mm -hmm. right? And that, like, is true for material objects in the world, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, you can do that. But in fact, like, it's, it is an illusion that you can get that for a fictional thing uh, because a fictional thing is infinitely morphable and also infinitely replicable, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it does not have a finitude to it. It can do anything you want it to do. Uh, I Right now, I'm thinking of a Dave that's dressed like Ronald McDonald. Right, like I'm inventing that. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm inventing a Dave. He actually looks nothing like Dave. He, wait, hold on. I'm thinking. I think I'm just thinking of Ronald McDonald, but I'm calling him Dave. Right, <laughs> like, does that? His. Oh wait, yeah, that's right. He's got a friend Grimace. Uh, there's some sort of Chicken McNugget lady running around. Mayor McCheese is there. Mm-hmm. He's been defunct for a number of years. I'm just calling him Dave now. I think that must be synthesizable into the universal Dave. Then, right? If it's a Dave, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like. Which is just to say, right, like, uh, uh, fictional objects are infinitely malleable. And what we do when we say, like, two perspectives then produce a kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, platonic or ideal Dave, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what what we're saying there is that we are creating a... Uh, fi- we would... One perspective on this, I guess is what I'm saying. One perspective on this would say... What you are doing is is constructing an ideal Dave of like shared uh, uh, qualities, right? Like a cluster of qualities that make up a Dave in ideality. Mm-hmm. In reality, what you have done, or from my perspective, what you've done is you've created an artificial category called Dave and said that everything that is in that category is Dave and everything that is outside of it should be excluded from Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ronald McDonald is not a Dave because it does not share qualities with a Dave. Mm-hmm. And... I would say, okay, well, that just means you have drawn your categories in a particular way to make sure that we exclude the grimace loving man himself. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, we talked about the grasshopper on Game yeah. Studies, Study Buddies, right? Like, I, I think I just have a radically different way of approaching this than, um, uh, than that. So, yeah, check out that episode if you care. Yeah, you, you should. You should check out uh, Game Studies, Study Buddies, uh, and many of our other fine shows at the Range Touch Network, uh, rangetouch.com. And you can also support us at patreon.com slash range touch, where we have all sorts of cool bonus content for Game Study, Study Buddies, for Just King Things, and also for Homestuck Made This World. In fact, uh, when you are listening to this episode, if you're listening to it on the day that it drops, uh, you can also go to the Patreon and you can support us and you can get the 
next Homestuck Made This World bonus episode, which is me fulfilling my classpect by bringing it all back to Shakespeare, because Cameron and I will be discussing uh, Francis Beaumont's 1607 play, Night of the Burning Pestle, uh, which you may be wondering, why on earth are we discussing a play from 1607 uh, in the Homestuck bonus episodes? Well, what is this play about? It's about a play that almost gets started, but uh, a bunch of people from the audience uh, object to it. They get up on the stage and they start making demands of the theater, uh, trying to dictate the course of the play. Uh, The theater attempts to continue on in its normal plot, uh, even despite this interference, and it gets weirder and crazier from there. And I think that this is going to be a really cool bonus episode, especially if you want to think about uh, how do Homestuckian concerns uh, not just arise out of the contemporary moment, out of nowhere, uh, but sort of work them, uh, not work themselves backward, but like have existed for a long time, right? There's there's uh, a long history of human art making, and the interplay between the artist and their audience has a long history, and we're going to see some recurrences of Homestuckian things uh, in the distant past in 1607, and I think it'll be really, really fun. Uh, any other thoughts, Cameron? Uh, no, a little preview. I don't know jack shit about what's happening in that play. <laughs> We haven't recorded it yet, but that's a little preview for everyone involved. I, If you asked me right now to tell you what the hell happened in it, I couldn't even remotely do that. Well, luckily, that's why I'm here. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, then we will see you again. Uh, t- tune in for the next bonus episode where I make Michael uh, watch Stan Brackage films for two and a half hours. I mean, I would do that. You, I owe you one now. <laughs> I know. Look, I read the play. I, I, I also did that, but I don't get a sense that you love that. The, love you reading the play? Stan oh, okay, Stan Brackage. Uh, I don't know. No, I think you love me reading the play. Okay. <laughs> I think you get a perverse joy out of me reading the play. <laughs> well, tune in. A, a joy that would only be pr- produced for you, uh, a greater joy would only be produced if I had to read poetry alongside. <laughs> <laughs> well, tune in to the bonus episode to hear how perverse I am. Um, well, that wraps us up. Uh, next time, we will have part episode 10-3 that will clear us out of episode 10. Awesome. And for that, I would like you to read until page uh, 6,943. Woo-hoo.